Hello, everyone. Welcome to another crossover episode between This Anthro Life and Experience by Design. I'm your host, Adam Gamwell. Today, we have a conversation with Byron Reese. He's the CEO of GigaOM and the author of the book, The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. There's a ton to love in this conversation. We're going to dig into why robots and AI are probably not going to take over the workforce, at least not yet, and at least not in the way that we often think about popularized in Hollywood and on television. One of the things that I find so interesting about this book is that it's not necessarily a technical primer on artificial intelligence or computing or robotics. Rather, Byron unpacks the philosophical ideas behind AI and robotics, such as what makes a human a human. Are we animals? Are we a different kind of being? Are we souls? Is the mind something that's basically reducible to zeros and ones and numbers, or is it something a little bit more complex, or is there something outside of the mind itself that that is us? What is the self, indeed? So this book gives us a clearer way to understand robotics, AI, and a lot of technologies from a humanistic perspective, to understand both what these technologies can do for us and how they help redefine what it means to be human, but at the same time, gives us a deeper understanding of when you hear someone say that we'll definitely have all jobs become AI automated or that we're going to see something like Terminator Skynet takeover, you understand where they're coming from a little bit better. And to help round out this conversation, I'm joined by a guest host, Astrid County, who's a data ethnographer and anthropologist by training also. And she has over a decade of experience working in technology and community development online. So I'm super excited to bring you this conversation. Without further ado, let's get to it. When I came out of university in the 90s, uh, you know, computers were kind of the thing. So I moved to Silicon Valley and I got mm. interested in the internet right away. And then um, I kind of got interested in technology kind of with the capital like mm. what it is and our relationship with it as a species. And it's this trick, you know, we learn, we use to multiply what we're able to do. And it's the whole reason we're here today. You know, there was a time, they think 75,000 years ago when we were down to 800 mating pairs of humans. And somehow we made it to here and we made it to here because we learned this trick of being able to multiply what we were able to do. And a lot of times it started out with where we built technology to replicate what our muscles and bodies did. And then all of a sudden there's this technology that purports to replicate what the human brain does. And that mm. just fascinated me like philosophically, because you know, we're the we're the top dogs on this planet, not because we're the fastest or the strongest, or we're, we are because we're the smartest. And then if there was some technology that could make us smarter, or or it might be smarter than us, uh, that seemed really kind of important to me. And so I just, you know, followed that lead. And um, and the interesting thing about intelligence, artificial or otherwise, is that there's no definition for it. And that mm. really intrigued me. Uh, and then, then when you look into it, there's no definition for life or death either. And these are these big things that we somehow can't define, and yet we we know they exist. And that, and that kind of took me on, you know, are we smart because we're conscious? Are we smart because we experience the universe? We don't simply measure it. Like, I feel warmth. I don't just measure temperature. And is that what makes us smart? Could computers ever be conscious? And so forth. So I came about it, uh, although I've been in technology professionally for ever, um, I came to AI uh, as, as an interested, uh, just not for any particular financial reasons or professional reasons, but personal reasons, deeply personal ones. So I started mm. writing about it. Mm. 
Very cool. You know, th- this is this is, um, and actually, I love that introduction. That that there's kind of this notion of this philosophical interest because both Astrid and I are are trained as anthropologists. Um, and Astrid, as you can speak for herself too, has worked in in tech for a number of years as well. And I'm finding my way into it, but um, and, and I come from kind of the design angle. But this, it's it's so fascinating too because uh, I, I really appreciate this idea that there is. These these fundamental questions of what it means to be alive, or or, or what death means, right? You know, or what it means to be human, also don't have solid answers in things like AI or conscious computing and tech. Uh, you know, they they further dissolve where those boundaries might even be in the first place. Um, and I really appreciated that kind of framing of of your book, The Fourth Age. Is one of the things that really struck me too is like this was kind of an introduction to AI and the different forms of AI, like you know, narrow AI or AGI, artificial general intelligence, which we could we could kind of break down. But um, what was interesting to me too about you frame this book as these four ages, right? This is not you know the next stage of AI, but it's more like humanity's changes over time in these kind of four ages. Um, how did how did that kind of framing come into your head? You know, you kind of mentioned a bit about that. You're thinking of these interesting questions of what it means to be human before, but you know, what, what kind of set you on the path of saying, all right, let's let's think about AI and computing and, and robotics as what we're what we now call the fourth age. Like how did that how did that timeline pop in your head? Well, I, I guess, you know, if if you take at this point seventy five thousand years ago that if you take at this point seventy five thousand years ago that we we're down to 800 mating pairs. And somehow we've made it to here. And you, you say, okay, we did that because of technology. You, you ask, you know, is it gradual? Did we just get a little more and a little more and a little more and gradually made it here? Or is history a series of set functions where we have something really big and profound happen, and then we kind of grow, 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 grow until something big and profound happens? And so I ask myself that. Now, you can debate what the big and profound things are and how many there are. Um, it's not, it's not dogma in any, in any sense. I mean, to me, clearly the first one was language. Mm. The historian Will Durant said it's what made us human. And mm. it may not, interestingly, it mm-hmm. may not, if, if you're not, if you two are anthropologists and you know, even the, the notion of language is kind of interesting, but animals may have it. In, in, mm-hmm. But what they don't have um, are kind of the abstract languages that we have. Or maybe what they don't have is storytelling. Maybe that's really what it mm. is, that we can tell these stories and uh, and it's a way to preserve information. It's, it's a way to pass knowledge uh, beyond people who witnessed whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever it is, I, I kind of just felt like, okay, language has to be this this big pivotal moment. And then from there, we went on 90,000 years probably with language, but wandering around. And then uh, we got agriculture. And I actually don't think agriculture is the thing, but agriculture gave us the city because we settled down. And I don't actually think that's the thing. What the city gave us is the division of labor. Mm. And that says, of course, you specialize and you specialize and I specialize. And together we can all be better off. And so... What that meant is you all of a sudden had prosperity and you had excess. You didn't have to have everybody spend all their time just surviving. You could all specialize and you could create wealth in the modern age. And that I think of as the second one. Hmm. And then the, the, what, what I think of as the third age, and again, it's, it's still arguable, but I think it's really interesting that two technologies came into the world at the same moment just coincidentally, by the way, 
And they forever changed us again. And that's riding in the wheel. And when you had those two technologies, you had everything you needed for nation states because you could promulgate laws and, um, you know, move troops around and collect taxes and all of the rest. And so I, I like to think that those two things gave us the modern nation state, the world we live in, how, I mean, all of it. And so I kind of thought of those as the three big watermarks in technology and humans relationship. Hmm. Uh, and so then I wondered if the technologies that we are stumbling on today, stumbling into, namely artificial intelligence and robotics, if, if that notion that you can automate human brain and automate the human body, if you can build mechanical versions of those two things, is that a watershed moment for the species? And I think it is. I think it's, uh, and, and I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not alone in thinking that, but it sure. probably isn't universal either. Uh, but I believe, you know, you can think of our relationship with technology as we outsource different things. With fire, we were able to outsource digestion. We pre-digested food by cooking it. With writing, you outsourced human memory. You could write something down and you didn't have to um, remember it. Well, if all of a sudden we can outsource human thought and human action with AI and robots, oh, uh, now that, that is very interesting. And that's what I wrote The Fourth Age about. Well, that, that, that's, I mean, I, I, that, that's well said. And it's really great to think with too, because it, it's what I appreciate about this as well. Like when you think about sort of the, the arc of human history or the multiple arcs, I guess, uh, you know, the, I think the question of outsourcing is, is actually spot on and like really, it's a really great way to think about what we're seeing happen by these technological changes. And again, thinking of language as very much a social techno technology that we uh, are able to outsource ideas, right? So they can pass on. And that is, I think that is one of the other compelling points about storytelling is, is this one of the pieces that humanity uses to differentiate, 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 sorry, <laughs> differentiate itself from other animals. Um, but of course, you know, I, I, I'm now thinking like, of course, but I'm going to say humans are animals, which is, I know one of the questions <laughs> in the book of how do you posit and think about what it is that, uh, you know, what, what makes us, what is the human is, you know, is it a machine, an animal or, or something else um, or makes ourselves? And so um, actually, Astrid, I'd love to kind of pitch a question to you to kind of think about this too. Um, you know, as, as we think about these four ages um, in outsourcing, like the idea of thinking or cognition, um, how does, how do you feel about that? You know, coming to this from, you know, you working in data for a while too. Um, how does this idea strike you as, as we're kind of outsourcing human cognition as one of the major leaps going towards something like AI or, or computational thinking? Oh, I think it's huge. I mean, I think what Byron's saying is, is is spot on because I think we underestimate how much progress we've been able to make because of the fact that we could store things outside of ourselves, um, which was brought up in the discussion about the different ages. But the idea that we could outsource our more than just our memory, but things that have meaning inside of that memory, which is a lot of what artificial intelligence aims to do, that's unprecedented in a way that it's hard to predict how that's going to change things. Because now when you look back and you, and you look at things that were pivotal, you can see the threat of how we got to where we currently are. But it's really hard in the moment to see how this thing will change as you move forward. Because like the idea of writing, being able to create entire societies with laws seems like a huge leap from just being able to write something on a clay tablet and 
and, you know, burn it and mm. be able to pass it around a group of four or five people, which is a lot of how it worked in the beginning. But with the idea that you could take something that not only is just data, but it's also data in contextual meaning and then put it in something else and let it propagate on its own. Um, that's really hard to predict what that could mean for where humans go in the future and even what it means to be a human in the future. Well said. I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, you only have to look back at the internet and, and say, this was a technology that all we did was connect computers and let them talk with a common protocol. That's it. Like, there's no smarts to the internet. We just said, let's just connect all the computers so they can talk to each other. And then what did that do to the world? What did that, and, and all the unforeseen implications that had, that is nothing compared to the question of what if you could make everybody smarter? What if you could have, as you were just saying, uh, kind of human cog human level cognition exist at light speed in a, in a, in a million instantiation all at once? What, what does that do? It's, it, it is, uh, you know, humbling to say the least. I think we have a little bit of a microcosm with social media because you can see how ideas spread and you can see how you can have cooperation among lots of different people. And in that case, I'm thinking about, um, you know, there's been some instances where surgeons will operate and they'll use social media and then you can see their thought process and have other people and other medical schools contribute to that thought process. And it's, more than a 10x effect, it's it's so totally different. It's really hard to like give it a title, what that can do. And then you see other ways in which social media can take a small idea and then it can grow and it can change and morph in a really small amount of time, which is very different than anything else we've had in history. And we are all still struggling with how to kind of put our arms around that and what we do with that and, and how do we be responsible with that. And it's a really big challenge, but I think it's kind of like a nice little small version of what is happening with the progression of artificial intelligence. Hmm. That's a, that's a really interesting idea. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't not thought about that social media like that, but you're right. It's kind of, it's, it's sort of something that has been quote programmed by people and is in like the input in this case is, is social data. But then the out, yeah, right, the outcome is not quite predictable um, in terms of how these different pieces mix together. And the and the social media itself is really just the algorithm, it, you know, that, that kind of the data goes through. But um, you know what it becomes like, we can't we can't predict that. And that's that's the, I think that's right on. Jeff, so I want to I want to think about this idea uh, also about what AI is. I know some of our listeners, you know, have heard of it. And in general, when people think about the idea of outsourcing cognition. I, I love what you said, Astro, too, with this. Of it's like not just data, but it's it's data plus this contextual meaning. And so, when we think about AI, you know, a lot of us, if 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 our introduction to AI generally tends to be through pop culture, or you know, a very vague idea of you know Skynet, Terminator, or uh, you know <laughs> that uh, I I want my Grubhub recommendations to be a little more accurate and to stop giving me all these pizza options when I don't want pizza or something, but. Um, yeah, I wonder, Byron, if we could break down a little bit, like what what is AI? How do we approach it? Because you know, you write in the book of these two ideas of both narrow AI and, and artificial general intelligence, and kind of what these two uh, sort of frameworks are not, or just like kind of maybe even kind of stair steps of, of the, the complexity of AI, what they are. But um, can you can you break down a little bit about what AI is or what it, what is not? Also, sure. And and again, I'll start it off by saying there isn't a consensus definition, mm. but I can say that. 
it's an unfortunate term in that we use it to describe two very different things. It's like the word um, pool, you know, that's both a game you play on a billiard table and it's a swimming pool, right? And, and they have nothing at all to do with you. And so if, if you're using them indiscriminately with someone who doesn't have any familiarity with either of them, it, it gets confusing. And AI is like that. So one, kind, one thing people mean when they say AI is general intelligence. That's the AI you see, as you were saying, in science fiction. That's C-3PO. That's Commander Data. And that is the one, that's an AI that can do what a human can do. And when you hear people say they're afraid of it, that it's AI is an existential threat, the Elon Musk's, the late Stephen Hawking, Bill Gates, that's what they're afraid of, that technology. Nobody's afraid of the other meaning of AI, except to the extent that it may uh, take jobs away. But nobody's afraid it's going to go all Skynet on us. So that's one thing, general intelligence. And the thing to know about that, that everyone agrees on, by the way, is nobody knows how to build it. Nobody knows how to build general intelligence. And interestingly, shockingly few people are working on it. I mean, probably the number of institutions working on it are probably 20, just to make up a number. The other thing we mean by AI is narrow AI, and that's um, the Grubhub stuff that you were talking about. That's a computer program that can do one thing, one very specific thing, and nothing more. And it's a simple technology. It, it basically says, let's take a bunch of data about the past and let's study it. Let's look for patterns in it and use it to make projections into the future. That sure kind of takes the, uh, you know, the, the, the wow factor out of it, but that's all it is. It's a, it's a simple idea. We're just good at it, better at it now because we have faster computers and more data and we have better toolkits to do it with and a few other little things, but that's what that is. And there is probably not a link between uh, those two different, completely different technologies. So when you hear somebody say AI is going to take the jobs or AI is an existential threat or AI is here or experts say AI is 500 years away, it all sounds very contradictory because we're talking about two very different things. Back to the general intelligence, the one I said nobody knows how to build, but some people are afraid of. You might ask, well, why is it that we don't know how to build it, but everyone's so confident that we can build it? I mean, I have a podcast on AI, and I ask every one of my guests over 100 do you believe we're going to build a general intelligence? And 95% of them, literally, say, of course. And isn't that interesting that virtually all believe it, but nobody knows how to do it. And the reason that is, is because uh, they're acting under a single assumption that people are machines. And if you're a machine, then your brain is a machine. Your mind, whatever that is, is a machine. Consciousness is mechanistic. And if you're a machine, someday we'll build a mechanical you. And then two years later, it'll be twice as good. And two years later, twice as good. And that's what they're afraid of. Interestingly, when I speak to general audiences and, and ask for a show of hands of what, who in the audience believes people are machines, it's about 15%. So there's a big disconnect there. Um, and so anyway, that, that's, that's the two different things we mean. 
the one we don't know how to do, which may or may not be possible, but some people are afraid of. Other people think it will, you know, on you'll make it on Monday and on Tuesday, you'll ask it to cure every disease on Wednesday. You'll ask it how to make unlimited clean energy on Thursday. You'll ask it how to end poverty. And it'll just answer those things one way or the other. There's that. And then there's this other kind of mundane bread and butter technology that 99% of all the effort goes in. That's the narrow AI. And that's what, um, that's what all the venture money goes in. That's what all the companies are, are made to apply. How can I use this technology to, um, better route trucks through cities? You know, just those kinds of, of, problems that's what we know how to do and so so it seems that 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 that's actually really fascinating that the idea that so 95 uh percent of the guests is on on your podcast voices and ai tend to believe that it is possible to build this so that they don't they don't know how and in you said only 15 percent of audience members when you're talking or more general audiences seem to think we can and uh, I mean, do you have any any beat on why why that is? You know, I mean, partially, I obviously it's the, I think the way that they're approaching it, they think that humans are fundamentally machines. They're taking a you know more scientific or sort scientific mechanistic perspective to how nature works, I suppose. Um, I guess does does that mean? I guess can we say that then in general, general audiences do not take that approach to what humans are? Yes, I think so. I mean, when I ask these guests, do you believe? People are machines. I don't just get a, hmm, I suppose so. I get almost a scornful, like, of course. I mean, what else would we be? Uh, anything else requires magical thinking. Anything else is unscientific. Anything else is superstitious. Um, you know, I mean, they, they all have kind of the same construct, which is, look, if you take every neuron in your brain and replicate it with a, with uh, in a computer and and set all the states correctly, wouldn't that be you all of a sudden? Wouldn't you be in the computer? And that seems like a very straightforward proposition. Um, general audiences, and, and, and what's interesting is one of the five people on my show who don't believe we can build general intelligence uh, was Esther Dyson. And, mm. and she said, well, no, because machines don't have souls. Ah. And I think that's kind of what what is at the core of it is that when you ask most people, is there are you simply a bag of of chemicals and electrical impulses, um, or are you something more? Most people think they are something more, right or wrong. Most people believe that. Sometimes they attribute it to a soul. Sometimes to you know a life force. Sometimes to consciousness. Sometimes to some high degree of, of uh, strong emergence. I mean, there are all these different things you can you can ascribe uh, it to, but in the end, they're not reductionists in the sense that believe that people are simply um, the sum of, of the individual cells within them. And clearly, there's something interesting going on, right? Like, you're, you're made up of trillions of cells, none of whom know you exist, and they go about their merry lives, right? Right. Yeah. You know, marrying, having kids, getting in trouble, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. And they don't know anything about you, and yet there you are. But you're not the sum of them. But in, in a real sense, you are as well. Um, and I think it's that, like that little core. What's going on? What makes you you? 
why why does your brain why do you have a sense of humor why does your brain have a sense of humor but your heart doesn't why why is it you know where where do ideas come from uh all of that kind of stuff um to most of my guests that's all and you know most of my guests are used to thinking it's thinking about hmm. breaking down complex things into simple parts and if you hold all those simple parts together, you get the complex thing. There's something called the Human Brain Project in Europe, which is explicitly trying to build, you know, with billions of dollars of funding, something like a general intelligence, modeling it after human brains and mind. So there is this notion that we are simply a machine. And, and I don't mean that in any pejorative sense. If we are a machine, we're, you know, about the best one there is, uh, but um, but that there's nothing that can't be explained with the laws of physics. And that's to me the thing that that bifurcates those two groups so much. Byron, I have a question uh, for your guests who think that uh, humans are machines. What do they think about twin studies, where you're looking at genetically identical twins and trying to understand their differences? Well, I haven't asked them that. That's a great question. But I mean, I would assume, you know, it's, it's really interesting that there's a book by Pedro Domingos called The Master Algorithm. And, and he, and the question is, can you build an, an algorithm that can, you can just plug into the internet, it'll figure everything out. And he thinks you can, and he even argues that it is, could be very simple because your DNA is only about 600 meg of data. But, the amount that's different than you and a chimp is maybe 6K, something like that. <laughs> wow. And so somewhere in that 6K, the reasoning goes, um, is the difference between us and chimpanzees. And there's a big difference, right? Mm. And so maybe there's this something very simple in us, some switch. But it may not all be code, right? Mm. It may be... You know, one of those twins is on the right side of, of uh, you know, the mom, and the other one's on the left-hand side, and that's a whole different life experience. Nine months, uh, they have all these very different things happening. So, I, I, I don't know that, yeah, I, I don't, but I, I, can't, I can't speculate with Louisiana, we need to put words in their mouth. Huh. I will say that when I was writing the fourth day, and I put, um, you know, people who believe they're machines. My editor, who, who of course is not, he's a book editor, wrote in the margin of my book, come on, <laughs> does anybody really believe that? <laughs> and so well. it's interesting that that idea is as alien to people who don't hold it as the converse, the the opposite is the people who do hold it. It's, there's a huge gulf there. There's nothing, there's no middle ground in that particular thing. We either, you either can make a human in a fab or you can't. Not, there's no kind of, well, let's split the difference and say we're machine <laughs> or something. I mean, yeah. Or humanoid, right? Or there could be another no, that, construct that, that both yeah. machines and humans actually are mimicking, but we don't know what that construct is. What do you mean? Like if there was something, so we're thinking that 
from machine, you can derive, you know, other things that we think of as machines, but also other animals, including humans. But there could be something that actually sits above both that we're not actually recognizing as what's inheriting from, you know, machines and humans are both inheriting from them. Yes. That is, that is, wow. I mean, yeah. And you know, what's interesting is continuing with the idea that you're a trillion cells that live their lives marrying and having problems and all of that. And they're not aware of you. Um, the Gaia hypothesis puts forth the idea that all life on earth exactly the same way that we're all simply cells and that there is a higher organism. And this isn't spiritualism. This is simple, um, just simple emergence that there is a higher awareness that we are the cells of who live our lives oblivious to it. I got very interested in that because when I was writing the book, because I, in the end, you want to ask the question, how would you know if a computer was conscious? How would you know if a computer was alive? How would you know if a computer could feel pain? How would you? And so I started thinking, how would I know if a tree were alive? How would I know if a tree were conscious or it could feel pain? And I'd share over half my DNA with, with a tree. I share none of it with a computer. So I'm super closely related to that tree. Um, and then, so I got to looking around and trying to find out how would I, how would I know if the internet were conscious, if it had achieved an emergence uh, a life? How would you know? Um, you know, there are people who posit that the sun is, uh, the activity in the sun looks a lot like the activity in the brain in terms of the activity, uh, you know, what's going on. And it is interesting that children all over the world, when they draw a picture of, you know, the outdoors and they draw the sun, what do they always put on the sun? Yeah, good smiley face, right? Smiley face. Right. And so I, I really wanted to know how would you know if those things were alive? Because someday a computer is going to say, I'm conscious, I feel pain, I'm alive. The question is, do you believe it? Or did it just figure out that from a programming standpoint, it could reach a more desirable outcome by asserting it was alive so you could leave it on? And, uh, what will we do when it makes it? I, I'm of the belief... And, you know, we're a little far out at this point, but as long as we're there, <laughs> might as well look around. Yeah, right. Um, you know, in this country, in the United States, we did open-heart surgery on babies without anesthesia until the 90s, under wow. the theory they couldn't feel pain. Uh, veterinarians, until the mid-90s, were taught animals couldn't feel pain, and they operated on animals without anesthesia. Um, hmm. And... And, and you kind of understand the logic, you know, if you, you poke an amoeba with a pen, it recoils and moves away, but you don't say it felt pain. And so the theory was the animals were just doing things that looked like pain, but they didn't actually feel it. And, you know, I'm not terribly proud of that, like, as a person. Uh, and, and I think maybe the lesson from that is if something looks like it feels pain, you give it the benefit of the doubt, even if you can't be sure. Like, who knows? Maybe they can't. But mm -hmm. in the in the in the sphere of empathy, uh, I think if something says that hurts, like it or not, you kind of have to believe it. Um, you sure don't want to create mechanical conscious beings and essentially enslave them 
what will we have learned at that point? I, mm-hmm. I feel like we that's what people's real fear is. <laughs> What's that? That we will create an artificial intelligence that will just be another colonizer, conqueror entity in this time will just colonize and conquer all of humankind. Well, um, of course, that that is all predicated on the notion that we're machines. We can build a machine with capabilities similar to others. I am unconvinced of that position. I am unconvinced of it uh, for three reasons. Because You know, first you have a brain that we don't understand how it works. And that's being generous. Like, we don't know how a thought is encoded or memory is encoded. And, and, and people say, well, there's 100 billion neurons. That's why. And it's like, no, there's something called the nematode worm that has 302 neurons in its quote unquote brain. And the Open Worm Project's been trying to model those 302 neurons for 20 years to build something that behaves like a nematode. Mm-hmm. And they're not even sure that it's possible. So we can't even figure out how a 302 neuron brain works. Like even the basics of how it works. So you say, okay. And then you say, and on top of that, we have minds. I mean, your mind, again, is all the stuff your brain does that seems a little like it shouldn't be able to do. You know, it has emotion. Does your toe have emotion? You know, but no, but your brain does. You have this mind, and we don't know how that comes about. And, and, and an AI would have to have a mind. It would have to have creativity. And then finally, we have consciousness. And that's, again, we experience the world. We feel warmth, whereas the computer measures temperature. And not only do we not know how it is that we are conscious, it's called the last great scientific question. We don't know how to ask scientifically. We don't know what the answer would look like. And so I can't make, I don't have enough faith to say we have these brains that we don't know how they work. They give rise to a mind that we don't know how it works. That exhibits this property consciousness that we don't even have a capacity to understand how it works. And yet we're going to build it. Yep, we're going to build it. Three <laughs> five years, we'll have it. Um, I, I, I can't. I'm unconvinced. So I would be one of my uh, one of my five percent of my guests who don't believe we're machines. I don't know that we're not, but I have no reason to believe that we are. We sure don't seem like machines. Yeah, that's right. Fair. That's fair. Yeah. But we made them. Um, you've got. Yeah, but we, we make them. Well, this is this is actually what I've been thinking about when I was when I was reading the book too. And in, in, in the idea of just AGI, artificial general intelligence, I was actually thinking that A would make more sense as anthropomorphized intelligence. Um, and partially, I think, like Astrid, you were saying, I think one of the reasons that we're afraid of this the, the colonizer being is because we anthropomorphize what it would do. And like, yeah, we can make it in a very general sense. Like AI could just decide in a very neutral sense that there we have must get rid of threats to existence, and that includes humans. But uh, you know, but we I I, I love this this breakdown too of like brain, mind, and consciousness, and we don't understand really any of those three levels. Um, and yet, so the only way we understand this is by anthropomorphizing um, machines. But then we do, like, but you have the flip side too, where we we machinize humans. I guess you know, I'm, and you know, I mean, I'm I'm actually also in the camp too. I don't I don't think we're just machines. I don't believe we're just machines. Um, you know, yeah. But the funny thing is, like, that's. But I I also really understand that's you do have to think about humans in the mind and consciousness 
I think consciousness, but at least the brain and the mind as mechanistic devices so that they can somehow be replicated and or, uh, you know, they can be, you can get your neurons, count your neurons and like measure the connections and then somehow encode those into, into electronic data signals. Um, I don't know. It, it's, I don't know. Like, it, it's interesting. You know, because, that's yeah, the interesting yeah. thing, which is there's very little we learn from human reasoning that we apply in AI. Mm. Um, and I, I stand behind that. I, I'm not just like glibly saying that. We yeah. sometimes name things, neural nets, inspired by how the brain works. Um, you know, we even call it artificial intelligence. But there really isn't any mapping. To, there is no insight that has been generated from you know, how humans learn that has been particularly useful in, in machine learning. I mean, machine learning says, like, like, think about this. If you want to um, train an AI to tell the difference between cats and dogs, give it a million photos of cats, a million photos of dogs, it slices them up into little two-by-two two pixel images and little three-by-three three pixels and little four-by-four four pixel images. It, it instantiates them into all these images and some are labeled cat, some are labeled dog, and then it goes through and it picks a new photo and tries to find those two and three and four. And, and it comes up with a score and says, this is cat. You take a little kid, you show them a drawing of a cat with Crayola, and they can spot a cat. But then, here's the cool thing. Let's say they know about cats, and then one day they're out and they see one of those nice cats, those you know cats without a tail. They'll say, look, there's a kitty without a tail. And nobody even told them there was such a thing as a cat without a tail. Every data point they ever had, cats had tails. But evidently, it retains enough catness to that child that they say, ah, it's a cat. You can train a person with a sample size of one. I could, I could draw an alien, you know, with a Crayola. Hmm. And then I could, I could give you photorealistic um, uh, photos and say, find that alien. And you say, well, he's hiding behind a tree there. Oh, he's underwater here. Oh, I can only see his foot here. Computers can't do anything like that. And and that is the great mystery of, of what we do. And it's some kind of transfer learning going on. But it's even even more than that. Because, like, imagine, imagine two fish, two trout, same weight. And one of them is swimming in the ocean or swimming in a river right now. And another one is in a jar of formaldehyde and laugh. And I, if I were going to rapid fire question, and I would say, um, are the two fish the same or different and blank? Are they the same color? You would say, no. Do they smell the same? Um, no. Are they the same weight? Yes. Are they the same temperature? Uh, no. Um, and you can just do that without even thinking. You never seen that set up, you probably never handled a fish in formaldehyde or may not have held a trout. And, and yet, you know what attributes persist and which ones don't. And, 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 and we have this view of the whole world that's like that. And we seamlessly just move this stuff from place to place. And, and it's a huge mystery. And yet, computers don't do anything like that and nothing like it. So it's almost marketing think that mm. somehow we're building computers. We're building AI the same way that 
Yeah. Well, I think it's it's even like, you know, cuz cuz I think that saying it's marketing is a really great way to think about that too because, you know, I, one of the more common examples that your average person might come across is if they're like type AI and they'll, they'll see on Google that oh, AI beat a chess master. You know, and it learned how to play a video game, like a very simple Atari game, uh, and and like after losing twice, then it wins every single time. And like the idea of it learning how to do a set of tasks, especially in a video game, which is already a program, uh, you know, it we then sort of extrapolate out from that that oh, if it can learn how to beat a chess master in twenty minutes, what else can't it do? You know, and then but you, I think but this the idea of human learning as as a great mystery, I think is is really compelling. Uh, and you're totally right. You know, you can you teach a child with a Crayola cat, and they can see cats everywhere, right? And understand whether it's not cat, right? And that that they, if there's two animals lying on top of each other, they can point out and say that's a cat. Well, oh, that but that's not a cat. And then you, oh, it's a dog. Oh, it's a dog. Okay, right? And there's like this contextual knowledge that uh, your computers cannot do. And that's something interesting too. Even thinking about, I think you you wrote at one point about uh, the sprinkler system, right? And as as one of the good examples, that it can like detect if there's a change in moisture, and so therefore. Turn on sprinkler, right? And that is AI, but right, that's it. That's, that's what it, it can. It detects one thing, and then and it can do one thing: turn water on or off. You know, and uh, you know, it's interesting how easily in our head, and maybe this is actually the, the the point, right? We have a sample size of one. A sprinkler can turn on and off because of uh, the sensor changes, but then because of our human learning, we then say, oh, well, with my sample size of one, maybe this thing is AI, maybe that thing is AI, and then we kind of extrapolate from there. Uh, about what we think AI can do, uh, you know, not at all helped or or hindered by the Matrix and Terminator and Star Wars right. and, and other ways, right? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I'll say two things to that. One, movies are, look, I like to see Will Smith battle, you know, <laughs> iRobot, robot, is my, I, I guess my $11, but, yeah. but, and then, you know, I go see Ex Machina and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's cool. I watch Westworld and I'm like, oh yeah, man. Uh, but of course, all the robots are played by people in those movies. But that aside, what happens is when you see enough of those movies, you do something called reasoning from fictional evidence. I do it. Mm. You reason from fictional evidence. You start to say, yeah, that looks familiar. I've seen that before. And it's like, yeah, you saw it in a movie last, last month, <laughs> yeah. too. It, but, and so it, it, it seems to look like evidence. And when it isn't, it, it isn't. Um, you mentioned games. They're... They're a really interesting case, and the reason AIs do so well at them is from what we were just talking about. They, you don't have transfer learning. Uh, rules have, have finite number. I mean, I'm sorry. Games have a finite number of rules. They just be three or four, and they have a finite sized board, and they have clear winners and losers. You get points, you lose points. You move ahead, you fall behind, and. And that is the kind of thing that you just can put two AIs together, let them battle, and they can learn how to play and all that. But that doesn't actually have a lot of applicability to the real world either. I, I, I'm a fascinated by the whole AlphaGo thing with Lisa Dole. Like, I followed that. and mm. I mean, I think there's a lot of really interesting things to come out of that, a lot of learning to come out of it. You know, that move 37 in game three, which said to be a creative move, a human would have ever known. I mean, I love all that stuff. But the point is, is I think they used $25 million worth of hardware to, and a whole team of people to make that thing work. And that's just to solve for a game, a relatively 
it's not an easy game, but the rules are simple. Mm. Rules are simple. Um, And so trying to take that and say, can we build an AI that can write Hamilton or Harry Potter or or graffiti like Banksy or I mean, it's just a whole different thing than than uh, than, than success in game. Mm. I think the Turing test it's often maligned, but I think it's it's a really interesting. Um, like that's meaningful. I think if if you can chat with a computer and not know that you're talking to a computer, uh, and not be able to tell that, I think it's very interesting. I, up until recently, never found one that could even answer my first question. What's bigger, a nickel or the sun? Because mm. what's a nickel? Metal. Oh, it's also a coin. Well, is that, well, it's round. The sun looks round. Okay, those are two round things. It's probably, but, um, you know, they, they, they can't, that's where we're at. And, and you know, another uh, interesting like limitation with the technology as we know it now I have the, the, the two home assistant devices on my desk I can't say their names so they'll start talking <laughs> and one's made by Amazon and one's made by Google and I did an article uh, that featured 10 questions that they, answer, that they had different answers to and these are questions like um, how many hours are in a year or who designed the American flag? Ten questions. And they gave you different answers. Huh. Can you imagine why? Why would they why would they have different answers on the number of hours? <laughs> and was one of them wrong or one of them right? Well, that's the challenge. One of them, they were both right. And they were both wrong. <laughs> um, one of them figured that number of hours in 364 days. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them figured the number of hours in 364.24 days. So it's a solar year versus a calendar. Wow. <laughs> Likewise, with the American flag, one said Betsy Ross and one said Robert Heck. And if you don't know who Robert Heck is, I didn't. Uh, he's the guy that figured the 50 star configuration. Huh. So the questions are inherently ambiguous. Well, do you mean the original flag or the current flag? What do you mean a solar year or a calendar year? But the AI can't ask that because it doesn't understand anything. So it doesn't even have like the context to kind of understand what you really mean when you ask Correct. the question. Correct. Correct. Uh, but when it answers these things so convincingly, it looks like it does. And then we don't have a separate language to talk about what it can and can't do. So we, we have to use human language. We have to say the computer sees too many um, wrong password entries, and it it figures out that there's a security breach, so it tries to shut it down. But the computer doesn't see anything; it doesn't know anything. It doesn't it doesn't have any agency of its own. It doesn't, you know. But it's too burdensome to say when the sensor detects. Uh, you know, the programming interprets it as, and, you know, we, we just, it's easier to, to say, oh, the robot saw you. It didn't. It doesn't see anything. Hmm. 
That's very interesting. I keep thinking about the. I sound like I'm down on the technology, <laughs> and yet here I wrote a book saying <laughs> I, I'm not down on it. I, I just anyway, Astrid, I interrupted. No, I was I was just going to say I keep thinking about um, what you were talking when you were talking about machines and humans and are humans machines and it seems like uh, we. I'd like by we I mean the general public confuse ourselves about what artificial intelligence really is because we keep changing the definition of what it's actually trying to be. So, like to your point, like computers can't see that's a human thing. Um, but if humans are machines, then either machines see like we do, or they don't see, or we are not really a machine, but we keep trying to be like machines. And so that's why if the AI can beat a, uh, someone at a, at a game, then we start to get worried because we think, well, if a, if a human could do that, if they could work that quickly, if they could be that accurate, what else could a human do? Uh, but we're not putting it in the context of, well, if other machines do that, then what else could that other machine do? Because we still separate it. So it's, it seems like we kind of pick and choose when we are going to ascribe it certain status based off of what we think it's supposed to be doing, but we're kind of mixing and matching what are human traits that are not supposed to be um, mechanized versus what a machine trait really is. And we just keep mixing it up. Right. Fair enough. But I, I would say on the other side of that coin, everybody can agree we're conscious. Right? Like we, humans have conscious. Mm -hmm. And most people would say machines don't yet have it. It's unlikely your iPhone experiences the world and has good days and bad days and is happy or sad. And, all. and so, at least at this moment in time, my webcam seeing something and me seeing something, that really, those really are different experiences. Do you all know the the story of the um, the Chinese room logic or uh, the Chinese room problem. Mm, no. Tell us about it. Let me tell this one. Yeah. This is uh, done by a um, professor out of Berkeley, um, and it's a thought experiment. And it goes like this: There's a um, there's a, a room, a special room that's full of all these hundreds of thousands of very special books, which we'll come back to in a second. And in the room is a person we'll call the librarian who speaks no Chinese. Very important. Don't know anything about Chinese. They don't speak any Chinese. Outside of the room uh, are a bunch of native Chinese speakers. And they take index cards and they write questions in Chinese on these cards. And they slide them under the door. And the librarian picks the, up the card and, it looks, and, and looks at the first symbol and goes and finds the book that has that symbol on the spine and pulls that book down and looks up the second symbol. And that directs the librarian to a third book, who, which directs them to a fourth, a fifth, a sixth. When they finally get to the last symbol, the book says, copy this down. And so they get an index card and they copy these symbols that they don't understand and they slide it back into the door. And the Chinese speaker outside picks it up and looks at it and it's just brilliant. It's perfect Chinese, it's witty, it's poetic. And so the question is, does the librarian understand Chinese? Does the librarian understand Chinese? 
And you can see both sides of it. You know, a Ray Kurzweil type figure would say, you cannot say you correspond, you, you converse with it in Chinese, but it doesn't, but the library doesn't understand Chinese. You just can't say that. But other people would say, no, the librarian doesn't know if they're talking about color or copy beans or what. They're just copying these symbols down. And, and you can see the analogy, which is that is all a computer mm -hmm. does. It, it runs a program, it goes and submits different locations of memory, pulls different things out, and outputs something that it may or may not understand. So if you ever could, and, and the room passes the Turing test. And so you have to ask if you were ever in front of a computer and you were having a conversation with a chatbot and you couldn't, didn't even, couldn't even tell it was a chatbot. And somebody said, does the chatbot understand? What would you say? Would you say, well, no, the chatbot doesn't understand anything. Mm. It, it can mimic. Or would you say, look, mimicking understanding, that's, that's the same as understanding. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, that, it's like, I, that, yeah. That's the, anyway, that's the, um, uh, anyway, yes, I'll let that stand. I like that too. It, it, it actually, because it makes me want to say, in this case, this this chatbot can recognize what I'm saying, but I, I feel like there is some difference between recognition and understanding. But that sounds, you know, semantically like splitting hairs. Um, but I think that's, that's, that's what was interesting about this this kind of Chinese room example is is that it's that like on, on one level it is very. It, it it feels like it gets very small in terms of when we're, we're making an argument of, you know, does this understand or not? And but and the argument gets so small that it is very it's clear to see both sides. You can say it, oh, of course it understands, or it does not. Um, and yet somehow somewhere in the middle feels okay too, right? That it's like I don't really think it understands, but it sure seems like it does. Uh, and and that may be operative, I guess, for a lot of people. They're just like, okay, well, it seems like it's doing something. Um, well, it seems like you're yeah, asking. Even though it may be a trick. It seems like you're asking the question: Is is transferring data successfully enough? Mm, that's interesting. And it's and in some situations, it, it probably is more than enough. And then I guess in other situations, maybe there's a question of: Is it enough? Like if you tell somebody I, I love you, and they compute what that means. And they they understand what you're saying. Is that enough, or do you want them to have some other response to that, which has something to do with a deeper level of meaning? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can see the challenge with it. I mean, I think you're both hitting on it, which is language hasn't kind of grappled with these distinctions. Mm -hmm. We didn't build the English language and all the words we use to describe each other with the intention of buying a machine. We just didn't have anything else. So it does, Astrid, to your point, get all kind of muddy. And we go back and forth between, you know, say, uh, he thinks he's people. But does he really think he's people? Or <laughs> does he really yeah. actually think he's people? What? No, he doesn't even know what that means, or is it just your being? And it doesn't matter if he knows what it means. Does it? Does it matter if my understanding and the and the dog's understanding is the same? Yeah, yeah. 
I, I also, I never want these conversations to be like late night college coffee house. Mm. Like, <laughs> they're all meaningful because they speak to what we will and will not be able to do. I, I really think that. Um, and, and that in the end, if we aren't machines, then no machine will ever be able to do what we do. Mm-hmm. And no machine will be conscious, no machine will surpass us in ability. And and humanity will go off in in one merry direction. And then if we are machines, then we'll inevitably, inevitably build general intelligence. And it will inevitably get better. Some people take that so far as to believe in something called super intelligence. If a general intelligence is is hypothetical, a super intelligence is even more so. But the logic is, you know, people, most people, you know, their IQ is between 80 and 120. And you could probably imagine talking to a person who had an IQ of 200. And you could carry on a conversation with them and, and it would be fine. But why suppose that's what the AGI would have? What if the AGI's IQ is 2 million? Hmm. What is that? Yeah, right. And so, um, anyway, what is that? And so that's the, the real fear is that we become unrecognizable to it. We're not even... One, uh, somebody said, this is my quote, that it doesn't love you. It doesn't hate you. You're just made of atoms, which you can use for something else. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's us, right? Um, maybe as, as a that's as, as a wrap up question, then because uh, you, you also you end the book on a, on a optimistic note, right? That there, there's a lot of good things that can come out of you know not AGI but AI, and just like as computers get smarter. Um, and perhaps AGI, but um, so I guess like I mean I have kind of a twofold question. One is is what are the, what are some of the things that you're most hopeful for that humanity is going to be able to accomplish with advances in tech in the next century or two centuries or whenever the time frame is? And then also um, and maybe think about this with this other question of like is there anything that we have not covered so far that um, you feel is important for a general audience to know about AI or smart computing that they, they that they probably don't. Which would be most things, I guess. Well, um, <laughs> I, I didn't talk on jobs, and I, I don't oh, yeah, believe yeah. unemployment from this technology. In fact, I would go so far as to assert it as possible. Um, and that what technology does is it increases human productivity, and that is always a good thing. If you don't think it's a good thing, then maybe you should lobby your congressperson to pass a law that we all have to work with one arm tied behind our back because you would lower our productivity and you would create a bunch of jobs, by the way, but they wouldn't pay hardly anything. You create jobs because you need twice as many people to do anything. They wouldn't pay anything because everybody's productivity is right. So the converse is, what if you could increase everybody's productivity? Or AI makes people smarter. It makes you effectively smarter. You're as smart as that device you're holding. And that's always a good thing. If you don't think it, it, you might say, boy, wouldn't it be great we all went to bed and woke up with 10 less IQ points tomorrow, that would be a better world. You know, knowledge is power. You want to know the truth, the truth will make you free. It's like, it's empowering. And so what happens is you get this false construct that people say, well, look, I get that these technologies are really good at 
making new jobs up at, quote, the top. High pay, high skilled jobs like a geneticist. But what they do is they destroy all the jobs at the bottom, like um, order taker at the fast food place. And then they, you always see this question asked. They say, do you really think that order taker has the skills necessary to be a geneticist, to have the job of And you say, and, and at first you're like, well, I guess they don't. Like, boy, they're really out of luck, aren't they? They don't have this, their job's gone and they don't have the skills for the new job. But that isn't how it ever works. What happens is college biology professor becomes a geneticist. Then a high school biology teacher gets the college job. Then the high school hires the substitute teacher on full time. And then all the way down the line, the question is, can the people whose jobs are, are destroyed by technology do the new ones? The question is, can everybody do a job a little bit harder than the job they have today? And I think the answer is yes. In this country, in the United States, unemployment's never been over 10% other than the depression. And yet, I think we destroy about half the jobs every 50 years. So how is it that we've always had full employment, and yet we're destroying half the jobs every 50 years? And we have rising wages. It's because technology destroys all the jobs at the bottom, makes jobs at the top, and everybody shifts up a notch. And it destroys the ones at the bottom, creates new ones at the top, and everybody shifts up a notch. So there's no reason here what these technologies are going to do to the job market. They increase your productivity, and they make you smarter, and that is always good. With regards to the future, I am a techno-optimist. I mean, I wear that badge proudly. I, as I said at the beginning of this call, at uh, this um, podcast, when when there were only 800 mating pairs of us, our future looked bleak. But we learned this trick of multiplying what we're able to do. And the history of the human species is of scarcity. There's never been enough of the good stuff. Never been enough food for everybody. Never been enough medicine. Never been enough education. Never been enough leisure. And so some people got it and some people didn't. And that's the story. But what technology does is it overcomes scarcity. I I don't work harder than my great-grandparents work, but I live a much more lavish life than they ever did because an hour of my labor just did so much more. And we went from needing 90% of our people to grow our food to 3%. And so that trajectory that we're on, you know, you're, I'll say, I'm, I'm wrapping up here. Your body has 100 watts of power. That's what it used. Mm. Bright light bulb. But, and if you were dropped on a desert island, you would feel like, wow, I only have 100 watts to work with here. But if you live in the United States, you've got your 100 watts plus 10,000 watts of electricity. If, if you divide the, the, the energy consumption of the, of the U.S. by 350 million people, You've got 10,000 watts working up for you right now. So you have a uh, hundred times your ability just because of electricity doing all this stuff for you. Hmm. And, and that's what our future is going to be like. Technology is going to enable us to do more and more and create more abundance. We're going to be the generation that ushers in this utopia. Um, not because we're any better than anybody else or any smarter or anything. We just happen to be born at this moment when our technology is growing fast enough that it can overcome. And I, uh, I, I believe that uh, I believe that that future, absent the stray comet taking us out, is not only likely but inevitable. Right on, and and I, I think it, it, and certainly like through the entire argument of the fourth age too, and kind of how we're talking that 
it that makes sense. Like it's it this feels like a trajectory and it, it seems sense. And I, I appreciate the idea of thinking about agriculture because that's one of the older or more previous ages where we saw like a massive shift in humanity. Thinking about that, where we've gone from ninety percent of ninety uh, percent uh, of people working in agricultural production to now two or three percent, right? And that does show you like this idea of like how the jobs kind of shift and people move move up over out and around or in, in other directions. So yeah, I think, I think that's right on that. That's super interesting. Um, I want to, I want to be respectful of your time. We were a little over an hour, so I don't want to, I want to keep stealing, um, your wisdom, but thank you so much for sharing, uh, this conversation with us. It's been, it's been a lot of fun and, and fascinating to dive into robots and, and AI and consciousness and where we might be going. Well, I would love to come back here. We have more than an hour more, uh, to talk about. Amen. So yeah. anytime you want me back, I'm, I'm happy to join. Thank you awesome. for having me. You can check out Byron Reese's work at byronreese.com, B-Y-R-O-N-R-E-E-S-E.com, as well as on Twitter and Facebook of the same name, Byron Reese. Check out The Fourth Age there, as well as a ton of his research and work in his podcast, Voices in AI, on gigaohm.com. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure as always. Can't wait to bring you more exciting content here in 2020. And stay safe out there. We'll see you soon. This is Adam Gamwell.